This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is Gary Thurman. Gary Thurman, number 89, outfielder for the Kansas City Royals. Okay, Gary Thurman. I'm going to pull him up on the Jumbotron right now. But first, it looks like we have some follow-up from last week and the Gerald Perry episode. Yes, very quickly, I made a couple mistakes. You know, mm. we, we strive for perfection, but you know, we're satisfied with, with very, very good, with near mint. <laughs> and I, I had some errors last week, some uncorrected errors. So we're going to correct those this week. First, I said the name of the person who suggested the Braves team leader card. I said it wrong. Mia culpa. It was at Braves Vintage on Twitter. I said it backwards. So apologies. Thank you, at Braves Vintage. And also thank you at Braves Vintage for pointing out the second correction. I said that Gerald was released by the Braves after 1989. I'm deeply sorry for that mistake. (laughs) He was traded. And my penance for this mistake is 15 more years of recording this podcast with you, Matt. Ah, yes. It's also your penance. (laughs) A proper punishment. (laughs) Gerald was traded with a minor leaguer for Charlie Liebrandt and Rick Lucan. That trade turned out pretty good for the Braves. Gerald Perry was done in Kansas City after one season. Lucan didn't do much for the Braves, but Charlie Liebrandt put up a couple good seasons, a couple 15-win seasons for the Braves in 91 and 92, and he played in two NLCSs and two World Series. Unfortunately, those World Series were marked by giving up a walk-off home run to Kirby Puckett in 91 and then being the losing pitcher in the deciding Game 6 of 92. So apologies, Atlanta fans, for pulling that Band-Aid off, but Charlie Liebrandt was what the Braves received in return for Gerald Perry. He was not released. Also a follow-up on Gerald's 1988 season. We had a comment about that 300 season. He hit 300, and legend has it, according to listener Adam, that Gerald sat out the last day of the 88 season to finish with a 300 average. When I look back at the game log, he actually didn't play in the last in the last game They didn't play the last two games of the season, so they only ended with 160 games played that year. And Gerald sat out half of the 159th game. So he went started the 159th game going 0 for 2, was pulled, so at a 300 batting average or maybe a little bit below, and then didn't play in the last game. So I've seen that a couple times. It wasn't that he sat out the last three games. They just didn't play the last two, so he only sat out one of those. And do we have any idea if he had a bonus riding on finishing the season over 300 or is this just one of those I'm not sure like it, superstitious I, things or who knows and I thought that it might have just been a an urban legend or something but it was reported in a book in the Braves encyclopedia that and so that rumor has persisted so mm. that is our Gerald Perry roundup for the week <laughs> well fantastic I feel better for one knowing that these things have been corrected. So thank you to the listeners out there for keeping us honest as the 1988 Tops Mystery Science Theater Decades of Punishment continues. Now let's go back to our card for this week, Gary Thurman. And David, why did we choose Gary today? Gary Thurman's card was the suggestion of Andy from highheatstats.com. 
uh, I have to admit that I found High Heat Stats after I found one of Andy's earlier projects, which was the 1988 Tops blog. I think that I actually referenced the 88 Tops blog on the Gerald Perry episode, and so I spoke Andy into existence on this podcast. <laughs> he posted about Gary Thurman on January 30th of 2008, different times back then. I found the Tops blog, and then I started following Andy on Twitter at High Heat Stats, and at some point he realized, wait a minute, who's this guy? And sent a, a tweet saying, you know I used to do this blog, and I had to sheepishly say, yeah, I, uh, I've been using it for research. But we are welcoming Andy to the podcast. What, did, did somebody say my name? I, <laughs> my name was said and I have to manifest, so I'm, I'm here. We said it three times and all of a sudden you appeared. So thank you, Andy, for joining us on the show. Tell us about what highheatstats.com is, and, but also how, as the godfather of the 1988 Tops podcast, how you came up with the idea for the 1988 Tops blog? Well, those, those two questions tie directly together. So the 1988 Tops set, the baseball cards, was where I first became a baseball fan. I started collecting that set in the offseason before the 1988 MLB season. Got super into it. That's what stoked my fandom of baseball. Because I'm always been a stats guy and a numbers guy that was the side of the game that I was always most interested in and years later in 2000 what 2007 2008 I forget when I started it I started this 1988 tops blog back on blogspot when that was still a thing I mean it still exists but it's not I don't think it's a platform that a lot of people use actively and I went through and I blogged about all of those cards and that was a lot of fun and there were some follow-on things i blogged after that other sets other things and then something interesting happened baseballreference.com started their own blog and they looked for people who wanted to make stats posts on there and i contacted sean foreman proprietor and well-known guy and offered to him to be one of the writers on the blog and showed him this 88 tops blog as an example of the work and he was like Heck yeah, you know, come on in and do that. And so I did that for a period of a few years. I can't recall exactly how long it ran for. Uh, so I did a lot of posts on what was then the Baseball Reference blog. At some point when their cor corporate structure changed, they decided to discontinue that blog. The day that that blog discontinued, I said, huh, I got all these people that are, that are reading their blog because, you know, Baseball Reference is a very popular website and I need to do something with that. So I very quickly said, I should just start my own brand. So I'm going to start high heat stats and try to pull all the listeners or readers or whatever from there over to high heat stats. And long story short, eventually we did a website and now Twitter is the place where you mostly find me. We have some other contributors on our website, but I'm mostly doing stats on Twitter. So that's the that's the that's the story. There's a very very direct line between the 1988 Tops cards and what High Heat Stats is today. And I have tried and failed to do some of the quizzes over at High Heat Stats. I'm not very good at them, but there's also some really just great posts, and it's a great website and a great Twitter account as well. I always enjoy the different statistical tidbits that are thrown out there on on Twitter. Why was your immediate suggestion when I said, "Do you have a card that you want to do?" 
Why did you throw out Gary Thurman? Well, it's certainly one of the most entertaining posts that I managed to put together on the 88 Tops blog, largely because of the comments section. But also, Gary's just a really interesting player and had a really interesting career, and so he just immediately popped to mind as a, an entertaining place to start. But there are there are so many great cards in this set. You have a whole world of fun ahead of you. Well, it feels like two worlds of fun behind us already, just in the 40-something episodes we've done. I'm glad from someone who's done a blog post of every single one of the cards that you're saying that there's a lot of fun ahead of us. That That's helpful. If you had said, oh, whoa. Woe to those who follow in my footsteps. So thank you for that. I would do it again in a heartbeat. I would blog the exact same set in a heartbeat. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. So Andy, thank you for helping to inspire some of what's coming up here. But let's dig into this card. Let's get to the Gary Thurman. So pulling Gary Thurman up. And David, the first thing I noticed, we we talked about this with Thad Bosley on the the Royals color scheme for the 1988 Tops cards there's just a lot of blue there's a blue uniform there's a blue hat there's a blue royals there's a blue gary thurman it's it's i don't know six different shades of blue in one screen and so much sky in the background as well i like this picture a lot i think this is a very good picture of gary he looks unlike some of our other topics he looks athletic and looking off into the distance And uh, it's a good-looking card, and Gary looks good in it. One of the great things about this 88 design that's that's, it's so simple but lovely is they picked this color on the border. So there's this light green color that goes on the border around the outside. And they pick a different color for every team. All the world's cards have this color scheme. And they also have the white font on the name. So both of those just pop, right? The green especially picks up any of the grass green that's in the background, right? Any... Pretty much any baseball card photo, you're going to have some grass in it. And I just think it was a great it was a great choice. One of the things you have to keep in mind is the jersey that Thurman is wearing is not a regular jersey. That is not a home or an away jersey from the 88 season. The home would have been white. The away would have been gray. And this was a time when there weren't alt jerseys. There weren't special jerseys wore on Sundays or for Mother's Day or for breast cancer awareness or anything like that. This is a spring training jersey. And that's one that they were wearing in spring training. So it was a really unusual sight for the time. The one other thing I'll point out is notice Gary's number written under the bill on his, on his cap. That's how it was done in those days because their caps would just go into cubbies. And to make sure that nobody switched caps, they would always write their name in Sharpie underneath the, underneath the bill. These days, everybody gets their own custom caps with their numbers sewn right in. Yeah, I'm zooming in very closely on the Jumbotron to find this, find the number. I can't decipher what it is, but I do see, Andy, what you're alluding to here. That makes me feel a little bit better about my eyesight because I looked at it and thought it said 52, and then I just looked up on Baseball Reference that his rookie season, he was number 53. Andy, you made a comment on the blog about a celebrity lookalike for Gary Thurman. Well, at the time that these cards came out in 88, I think Arsenio Hall was was just coming into national consciousness as a late night host. I will say that if you look at any other photo of Gary Thurman, he does not resemble Arsenio Mm-mm. Hall. But on this particular card, he to me he really does. The very strong jawline and he has a he has a longer face and 
and I think they're both good looking men and, and they resemble each other in this particular photo. So I made the comment right there in the, on the blog post about it being Arsenio Hall and even referenced the, the popular dog barking call that was on Arsenio Hall's talk show. I feel like we, we, we can't let it go unsaid, though, that at this moment in time of recording, Arsenio Hall is back in the limelight. Coming to America 2, out in fake theaters now on Amazon Prime. <laughs> so uh, let's flip to the back of the card now, again of card 89. And Gary, 5'10", 165, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Royals in June of 1983. And... Uh, hometown of Indianapolis, born November 12th, 1964. He went to North Central High School. Other famous North Central High alums, uh, Kenneth Babyface Edmonds. I learned that that nickname was given to him by Bootsy Collins, which is a fun mm. note. Uh, that Babyface was playing music back when Bootsy was. I did not realize that he lasted all the way into the 90s and into today. Priyanka Chopra, the actress who's married to a Jonas brother, went there for a year and developed a love of basketball in the Indiana Pacers. And Eric Gordon, who is the sixth man of the year. But when he went to North Central High, Gary Thurman was a highly recruited football player, along with his baseball skills. He actually played football first, didn't really get into baseball until his freshman year, and he only went because his friend was going, so he tagged along. He said it was kind of boring, wasn't as exciting as football. By his senior year, he ended up a first-team high school All-American in baseball. He had a scholarship offer from University of Miami, along with multiple scholarships for football from most of the schools in Indiana. Purdue was his top choice, and his friend Ray Wallace was a running back there. Ray Wallace went on to play in the NFL. He had clearly had some speed, as we'll see in his Major League Baseball career. He would have been one of the early prototype running quarterbacks, but instead, he decided to go pro in baseball. Yeah, and that takes us to the This Way to the Clubhouse, where the fun fact of Gary being signed as a first-round draft selection, June 8th, 1983, by Scout Art Stewart. And Art Stewart is a Hall of Fame scout. He is 94 years old and still works for the Royals. Whoa. He has a, a great history, and we'll post a linked at the Royals website about Art Stewart. But I love to see this guy who's been scouting since 1953, still in the game. He signed Gary as a first-round draft pick. And, and part of the reason why Gary chose baseball over football is the fun fact. The second fun fact on the card is that he and twin sister have triplet brothers and sister. I took the LSAT, and this is... It LSAT logic puzzle. It, it is, it's difficult to understand because there's no commas in there. And I think that it's also wrong. It's playing mind tricks with me. Like how many kids are in this family? He and twin sister have triplet brothers and sister. Do they, are there like 12 kids in this family? I don't get it. And this takes us back to the 88 Tops blog comment section. The commenters also could not figure out what was happening with this. But they got some expert help. So the post for the Gary Thurman card went up on January 30th, 2008. And there was a lengthy discussion. But not until August of that year was there a comment from someone whose username is M. Thurman. So same last name. And what M. Thurman said was, Hey, the real facts about Gary and his siblings are that he has a twin sister 
Monica, and he also has triplet sisters and brother, Lynette, Latresse, and Lamont. I know because I'm one of the triplets. And so I think when you reference the card being wrong, the card says he has triplet brothers and sister, implying two brothers and a sister. But this person, who I'm sure is an authority, says it's it's two sisters and a brother among those triplets. And this same commenter is the one who said, Andy, whoever you are, whoever is you not are. Uh, Arsenio Hall. To which you had a, a a nice response and let her know it was only a joke. And, and I think that folks understood. And then I th- immediately after that, you have a comment from someone who says they used to date Gary Thurman when he played for the Kansas City Royals. Please tell him Amy from Ottawa says hi. And then you have an L Thurman. So now you have another sibling saying Gary is doing fine and talks about his coaching career. And then also says no problem about teasing him. We just wanted to correct the mistakes. And then says, Amy, I will tell him you said hi. And again, all three of those triplets have L L initials for their first name, so probably one of those people. What I love, though, is the Web 2.0 era of of blogging and comments and the fact that you are able to really have a conversation where then fans later on are saying, oh, hey, I just picked up this card. Can you get me an autograph? You know, five years later. And so... It's it's magical. There's just a, there's a magic to the comments, I, and it and it answered the question too. That's the best part. You actually got the answer to the question. Yeah, there is something really nice about that. I mean, today's today's internet is obviously not quite as friendly a place. I think for for basic connection and discussion of this type, but you can reach players, for example, pretty easily on Twitter. Those who are on Twitter, not hard to get information directly from them so uh, i think there will be others in your set who you can probably reach out directly to if you so desire so because of that that large family he had a twin sister and triplet brothers and sisters five kids his mother was a single mother and gary knew that his family needed some money he also knew that a baseball career would be longer than a football career he could get drafted out of high school and wouldn't have to go to purdue being a quarterback at Purdue, aside from Drew Brees, is not necessarily probably a, a great route to the pros or a definite route to the pros. And so he signed as a first-round draft pick with the Kansas City Royals. He got a bonus, and he said that that bonus really helped his family. However, because he was not a huge baseball fan and wasn't even particularly interested in baseball until high school, he thought that he was going to go right to major leagues after he was drafted in the first round. He's drafted two picks after Roger Clemens. He's going to be big time. And instead, they put him on a flight to Florida, and he goes to play in rookie ball at Sarasota. They told him the airport limo is going to pick you up. He thought a stretch limo is going to come, but it was a van that was marked airport limo. (laughs) And so instead of playing with George Brett and Willie Wilson, he goes to Sarasota and starts his minor league career. Yeah, not bad that first year. You know, 256 in his first year and 31 stolen bases ends up in Charleston single A in 1984. At which point he thought about quitting baseball. He fell off a lot, had 127 strikeouts and only hit 228. At this point, he's only 20 and he thought, well, I could still go back to college and play football. 
And then he got married mid-season, and he really put his nose to the grindstone and said, I've never failed at anything before. I'm going to work my way through this, and we're going to figure it out. And his mom told him, you started something, see it out. And he did. He It seemed like at each level, successively in the minor leagues, he caught up with the pitching. He had a child on the way that he needed to support, and he needed to succeed, and it just seemed like he, he got it with each rung of the minor league ladder, he hit pretty well. He was hitting over 300 at A ball, called up to double A, hit 312, hit some home runs, 53 steals. In the lower leagues, he also led rookie and low A ball in stolen bases his first three seasons in the minors. When he got to Memphis, he was playing with Bo Jackson. And Gary might have actually been playing well enough to get called up. The Royals called up Bo instead. And even though he had a great year in 1986, hitting 312, 53 steals, he didn't get called up from Memphis. He got called up to AAA, played pretty well at AAA, finally earns his call up in 1987. But it was kind of a rough window for him because the Royals at the time have Willie Wilson, Danny Tartable, and Bo Jackson in the outfield. Is there room for a guy who rarely hits for power, has a lot of speed? They already have Willie Wilson. That 1987 season Gary gets that call up in August because Bo Jackson was missing some games but his first game David ended up he had a bit of a dilemma so he's in Chicago an hour before the game he's called into John Wathen's office and Gary finds out that his wife is going into labor he could either drive back to Indianapolis to be with his wife or play in the game in his first major league game uh, and he decided to play in the game. He knew that he had friends who were coming up from Indianapolis to watch him play, and he knew that he could catch a ride back after the game and be there with his wife. So he decided to play in the game. Although he had always played center field, they put him in at left. He made an error. He said that he was lucky that John Wathen was the manager at the time because Wathen had been his manager in the minors, and so he knew that Gary wasn't going to be that bad every time. It was just nerves of playing in his first game. He got a hit, a single, and he also got a stolen base, and he made an error. But it was a big day, and then he made it back to Indianapolis an hour after his daughter was born. And he said that he called her his big league baby. (laughs) And he also said he was happy to have big league insurance at the time. So if that baby had been born a few weeks earlier, I'm not sure what his insurance would have covered. But he did make it back to Chicago to play the next game. What's well, a great story. So for the whole 1987 season, his line is pretty good. He ended up playing 27 games in that rookie season and hit 296 with seven steals. You know, other card manufacturers rated Gary as a rated rookie. So he was a rated rookie in Donruss. He was a rookie prospect in score. But Gary wasn't a future star here. Do you have any idea why? I don't know how that decision was made at Tops, but I do know that Gary was widely regarded as one of the best athletes coming up to the majors at that time. I know that he was mentioned in the same breath as Bo Jackson as a two-sport star, even though he was no longer pursuing football, but he was definitely regarded as one of the best prospects around. It may just be that his lower on-base percentage in the minors made Topps a little bit wary. Topps also has a very spotty record of picking picking future stars, so I wouldn't think too much too much about it. You know, one thing that's interesting regarding his 1987 line is how much higher his on-base percentage is than his slugging percentage. 
He had an on-base percentage of 360 and a slugging percentage of only 321. That's 39 points lower, which is very statistically odd and unusual. And that tells you that he drew a few walks, but he got very few extra base hits. No homers, no triples, two doubles only, but but eight walks. As we go to 1988, you know he's still not starting, really trying to push for a spot in the outfield, but he's competing, David, like you said, with Bo Jackson and Danny Tartable and you know not making it for opening day, but did get a couple of call-ups in 88. In June, he was called up and then sent back down and called up again in September. And he ended up hitting 214 in his time in the majors. Again, not getting on base often enough. And maybe this goes back to the way that Gary operated in the minors. It seemed like he would catch up with the pitching at each level. And maybe he, in these early seasons, wasn't up for long enough and didn't get the consistent playing time to catch up to major league pitching. So he bopped back and forth between AAA and the majors in 88 and then again in 89 yeah in 89 he's hitting 195 it was an interesting stat here of going 16 for 16 in stolen bases which was tied for an american league record that was later broken by paul molitor but still very impressive everyone knows you're going to try to steal and you'd think that he would get caught at some point but just very fast a couple of things to mention on that point are that thurman was I think widely regarded as maybe the fastest player in the game when he was active. And he is, you're right, Matt, very much like Ricky Henderson. When Ricky Henderson was on base and second base was open, there was no question of, is he going to try to steal a base? It was just a matter of on which pitch is he going to try to steal the base. Henderson was still successful a very high percentage of the time, as was Thurman. There's one other thing that I want to mention, though, as long as we're going to draw the the similarity and the contrast to Ricky Henderson, Thurman batted more times in his career from the eighth or ninth spot than he did from the first spot. So even when he was brought up, it's not like he was inserted at the top of that lineup. Willie Wilson was up there, as, as was already mentioned. And you have to remember then, you get on base, you can't steal if second base is occupied. Right, if he got on by a walk, for example, and someone else was on first or second at the time, can't you can't attempt a stolen base in those situations. And so Matt was right when he said that Thurman was very aggressive because he did run in a high percentage of the times when it was even possible, and he was successful a very very high percentage of the time in his career. So moving to 1990, he's again splitting time between Omaha and Kansas City. He almost won a batting title in AAA. Uh, hit 331 there, and he's still only 25 years old and just not able to quite break through at the majors and wondering where he could find an edge. Well, the Royals thought that he could find an edge if they taught him to switch hit. <laughs> what? And he said that they had done this with him earlier in his career, and so they sent him down to an instructional league at some point in, in around 1990, it just seems kind of nuts to me that they would say, like, yeah, you've been hitting right-handed all your life, and just why don't you give it a try? He said that he didn't actually end up switch-hitting in games, but he would bat lefty in batting practice, and then he felt better about hitting righty in the games. So it was maybe a confidence thing, but I just thought it was really interesting that they sent him down and said, yeah, learn how to hit from the other side of the plate. I remember at the time the, the, the discussion that Thurman was going to learn to switch-hit and it is, again, an indication of how athletic he was and how he was regarded as a guy that 
could learn any skill. The fact that he was not a lifelong baseball player as a as a little leaguer and all through high school as a as a star and all the rest of that tells you that he was an extremely high level athlete. The fact that he could hit major league pitching at all. And David, I think you've hit it exactly right, that he was sort of learning as he went along, learning how to hit pitchers at each individual level as he got there. And the hope was they could give him an edge, just to be able to hit major league pitching just well enough because all of his other skills were superlative. So at the end of that 1990 season, he wins a title with the Omaha AAA team. That gets us into 1991, which was his best season as a pro. And David, a couple of rare moments for Gary Thurman. He hit home runs. Whoa. <laughs> two of them. Two of them. Two of them. Those are only two home runs of his career. He also had his first full season in the big leagues. He wasn't getting shuttled back and forth. He hit a home run on May 15th in the Sky Dome, over the fence even. One would expect with a guy of Gary's speed that in the minors he hit six one season, seven another, eight in another season. And I, I got the impression that a lot of them were inside the park home runs. But May 15th, he hits one over the fence. He didn't get it for his collection, though. The ball was gone. So that's sad. But later in the season, he had his second and last major league home run. That one was an inside-the-park home run. He said he didn't have a lot of power, but he hit the ball hard and ran like hell. That's a good philosophy for life. So 1991 was his best season. However, there was a, a manager change during the season that, that gave Gary some trouble. So John Wathen was let go only 37 games into the season and replaced by Hal McRae. In an interview, Gary said that he learned a lot of things from John Wathen and loved playing for John Wathen. He said Hal McRae taught him a lot of things not to do when he was a coach. <laughs> and maybe he was referring to things like this 1993 incident in which Hal McRae, who sadly is not in this set, threw a tantrum, screamed obscenities at reporters, and threw a tape recorder. And it's all on video. We'll put the video in the show notes. <laughs> Matt, I don't know if you were going to want to drop some of this audio in. It might get us a explicit rating. Yeah, I try not to have violence unless it's a coach fight. Coaches throwing things at reporters doesn't quite qualify. So you will not be hearing the Kenny Loggins during this section. The end result of that Hal McRae incident, it didn't end in Hal McRae getting fired, which is crazy. He basically assaulted a reporter with a thrown tape recorder, and the guy ended up bloodied and leaves the Hal McRae's office with blood coming out of his face and... Hal goes on to continue to be manager of the Royals. For 1992, Gary again plays more than 80 games. Although the Royals don't have a very good year, but Gary's doing okay, hitting 245. Things are starting to wind down. It's Maybe the writing is on the wall. He ends up getting cut 1993 preseason after 10 seasons in the Royals organization. Maybe another reason he doesn't like Hal McRae. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't make the team in 93, but he ends up signing with Detroit to play as a fourth outfielder and has kind of a rough season. He hits 213 and only gets 100 plate appearances that year. I think the real trouble come 1992-93 is he's 27, 28 years old. His on-base percentage is still south of 300, which is just 
a very bitter pill to swallow. That's when the writing comes on the wall that says, if this guy is already at his peak age, where his his other skills can really only start eroding at this time, just for, that's the natural curve for anybody, and he's still not getting on base at least 30% of the time, it's tough to think about him as, as a contributing major leaguer at this point. And to that end, he ends up bouncing around the minors for the White Sox, then for the Mariners... Gets a little bit of time in the majors in 1995 when Ken Griffey Jr. was injured. He ended up hitting 320 over 13 games for the Mariners, but he didn't get included in the postseason roster in 1995. He ends up signing for the Mets and ends up playing his last 11 games in the majors in 1997 and ended his career with Anaheim's AAA team in 98. A few more games in Newark in the Independent League is it. And that closes the book on his career. 424 games over nine seasons in the majors and hit 243 with 65 stolen bases. Andy, I wanted to dig into this point that you've mentioned a couple times about on-base percentage. The combination of the fact that he doesn't get on base all that often, but that when he's on base, he's such a threat to steal. And you had found from the statistical analysis that that Gary is kind of in rarefied air with that kind of combination. Yeah, there's there's a certain class of player that we see from time to time that fits the description that you just gave. And and again, it's this is not somebody like Ricky Henderson who got on base at a very high clip. He was a great hitter, he walked a lot and also had that speed. There's a there's a class of player that has the same kind of elite speed but doesn't have the same kind of hitting skills or doesn't draw that many bases on balls. Anyone who knows me knows that I love the stat head capability at sports reference and specifically at baseball reference. It used to be known as the play index, but has recently been rebranded with the help of our mutual friend, Adam Dorowski. If you take a look at players since 1970 who appeared in at least 400 games, guys who attempted a stolen base in at least 15% of their games played and played in at least 400. And then you can rank them by the lowest on base percentage they have in their career. And there are a handful of guys that are down in that sub 300 range. And Gary is one of them. Gary comes in sixth on that list that I just described with a career 297 on base percentage, but he still managed to steal, steal 65 bases in only 424 games. Now, he's right alongside a player that many baseball fans from today will be much more familiar with, Billy Hamilton. And we're not talking about the Hall of Famer Billy Hamilton from the last century. We're talking about the guy who is currently struggling to stay in the major leagues because he has a career 296 on base percentage, just one point below Gary and has stolen 305 bases in just 840 games, which is an incredible ratio. These two guys are, are really quite similar, and you can think of Thurman as as his day's version of Billy Hamilton. Blazing fast speed, super athletic, fantastic defender because of the ground that he can cover in the outfield. You know, any fly balls just do not escape his grasp. Billy Hamilton has produced tremendous value on the field as a defensive outfielder and as a base runner with incredibly high success rates on stolen bases, but he's just not getting on base enough. And it's just very hard to give a roster spot to a guy who 
is making so many outs. That's the that's the problem at the end of the day. Is how many outs are you making every time you come to the plate? And then by the end of his career as well, if you're looking at him getting a significant salary as a 27, 28-year-old player, you just can't keep that guy in, on the roster. Andy, you also have a note here about somebody who all he did was show up on base but never actually got on base, and that's Herb Washington. Yeah, and I think we mentioned Herb even on the comments back on the 88 Tops blog. We mentioned Herb there as well. He was known in his day as a designated runner. Charlie Finley, the owner of the A's, tried a lot of unusual things. Some some of them were what we might call gimmicks, and some of them were not. But he was a unique thinker and was the first guy to try a lot of different sorts of approaches. And this was one of them, bringing in a guy who had no experience hitting major league pitching or I think even minor league pitching at all. All he did was come in as a pinch runner to try to steal bases and score runs. Herb Washington was a college All-American sprinter who once ran a 9-4 100-meter dash. So incredibly fast. <laughs> Played in 105 games, won a World Series ring, never got a plate appearance. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> also, as you know, we're the number one source for lawsuits against Lenny Dykstra or the devil yes. or McDonald's. Mm. Herb Washington filed a suit against McDonald's claiming discrimination. After his playing career, he owned 27 McDonald's franchises and started as a franchisee in 1980 and recently has claimed that McDonald's has discriminated against him and made him sell his franchises to white buyers. We'll include that important breaking news. This just happened in the last month, but McDonald's countered that he had some health department complaints and we'll follow up with that on our other podcast. This week in franchise litigation? Yes. And since you guys uh, obviously love baseball cards, since that's the genesis of your podcast, it's worth mentioning that his 1975 Topps card is an iconic card because I believe it is the only card in existence that lists his position, lists anybody's position, as pinch runner. <laughs> that is actually what is visible on his 1975 Topps card. And we have to give a quick shout out to... Night Owl Cards, who specializes, Greg from Night Owl Cards, specializes in the 1975 top set. And he's the guy that first brought this story to my attention. <laughs> that is amazing. So we will, we will check that out as well. After Gary retires, he goes into coaching like so many other players. He was a manager at the minor league level and a coach, you know, first base, base running coordinator for Cleveland and uh, for the Marlins. And currently is with the Nationals, has been there since 2013, and base running and outfield coordinator. So 38 years later, after the draft, Gary Thurman is still in baseball. It's pretty amazing. Gary said he chose baseball instead of football for the longevity of the career. Gary played nine seasons in the major leagues, pretty long major league career, but then added on to that many years of coaching. And a 38-year career in baseball is pretty outstanding. So as we close the book on Gary, Andy, looking back after all these years, you know what, what do you think of this card now that we've dug into it? You dug into it the first time, and now you're doing it again. What do you think about him as a player and this card? Well, you'll be hard-pressed to find an 88 Tops card that I don't love. And I, and I love this Gary Thurman card. In truth, 
Gary always had a reputation of being a great guy. He was always well-liked. You can see that although he bounced around from team to team, it was never that he was unliked, got released, or anything like that. It was that his contract ran out and teams didn't bring him back because they didn't think they could afford a roster spot for him. But there was always somebody who wanted to bring him back in, whether it was as a player as a coach. He had world-class elite speed, which led to him being one of the best base runners around and one of the best outfield defenders around. To have that skill and then to ask a guy, oh, I also need you to be one of the best hitters around so that you can actually hit major league pitching, that's a pretty tough ask. You know, if a, if a guy can do both of those, you end up with Ricky Henderson or Kenny Lofton or, you know, these once-in-a-generation type players. And the fact that Gary fell slightly short of that should not be regarded as a failure in any way. This guy was a high-class, world-class athlete. It is really quite impressive. He didn't really play baseball as a youngster and then became a high school All-American, then became a first-round draft pick. It's an amazing athletic story. Rising at each level of the minors to catch up to the game, to catch up to pitching, and we find him on this card. He seems to be catching up to major league pitching. He didn't really get the chance, but just an amazing athlete. And looking back at this card and looking at the back of it, you would see him leading the league at every level of the minors in stolen bases. And it just seemed like it was going to be a matter of time before he takes over that center field spot in Kansas City and leads the American League in stolen bases. It didn't quite work out that way. Instead, he was kind of a quad A guy for nine seasons, getting some regular playing time, but never really a consistent starter. But like you said, in interviews I've read, he seems like a great guy. And this is a really just a, a fun card and a fun story of the 88 Tops blog. And great that that led you to us and um, and to join us on the podcast. Andy, thank you for helping to bring Gary to our attention and for being the godfather of the 1988 Tops podcast. We'd love to have you back later. So thank you very much for, for being with us today. My pleasure. And remember, just say my name three times and I will appear. You can find more about Andy and High Heat Stats at highheatstats.com. Thank you for listening at home. If your twins have triplets or your triplets have twins, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.